0: Here's the thing that I find totally fascinating about the 2006 midterm election. In so many ways, it's exactly like the 1994 midterm. You have a party that's languished in the minority for years. You have a president struggling in his approval ratings. And you have this guy in the middle of it all, the chairman of the minority party's congressional campaign committee. A job that has historically gone to someone with widespread appeal within the party. A team player. A diplomat. Somebody with charm. And then you have Rahm Emanuel.
1: There's a famous story about him that came from his work on the Clinton campaign, which is where he sort of got his start in national politics, in a way. Um, and after the election was over and Bill Clinton, of course, had won, the staff was celebrating at a restaurant. They started talking about all the people who they felt had not served them well during the campaign, particularly Democrats who had not endorsed Bill Clinton. And he, Rahm picked up a knife and started Stabbing it into the table and yelling out the names of the people who he felt had betrayed them, and saying that they were now dead. So he'd call out a name and say, "That person is dead. That person is dead." And he kept stabbing the table with the knife.
0: Like I said, charming. Let's face it,
2: Rahm scares us all.
0: (laughs) Rahm Emanuel, junior congressman from Illinois. Picked to be the chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC.
2: You know, of course people describe him as
0: ambitious and pushy and a control freak who
2: calls all the shots.
0: Rombo, the enforcer. In the words of Rolling Stone, an attack dog straining at the leash. The guy who once mailed his political nemesis a dead fish. The guy who has such a big reputation that, in 2005, an epilepsy research foundation brought in tens of thousands of dollars by throwing him a roast, charging politicians to attend. The whole thing was recorded, and the video is practically a C-SPAN greatest hit.
3: The truth is, Rahm doesn't just talk about the Ten Commandments. He lives them, with some modifications. Uh, (laughs) The one thou shalt not kill unless he's a target. (laughs) Isn't it ironic, though? Every year, Jews celebrate Passover, recalling the day that the angel of death passed over their homes in ancient Egypt. Today, Republicans celebrate when Rom passes over their district.
0: But Rom's relentless personality is exactly why he ends up scoring the chair of the DCCC. One of the biggest roles in the 2006 campaign season his job to get democrats elected to the house
2: and it's time for a change because we cannot do and keep doing what we've been doing for the last five years with the same results and expect to do
0: better that's rom and at that moment it had been more than a decade since the 1994 republican revolution the gop had control of the house and the senate Democrats were out-campaigned, they were out-fundraised, they'd lost two consecutive presidential elections, and if they had any chance of winning back the House of Representatives in 2006, they had to go for the unconventional.
3: It hasn't been easy for Rom, though. As a young man, he had a serious accident. I think uh, many of you are aware of this. He was working in a deli, uh, accident with a meat-slicing machine. He lost part of his middle finger. uh, uh, As a result of this, This rendered him practically mute.
0: Um. Yeah, that's the guy who's going to save the Democratic Party.
3: Has he ever flashed that little stubby thing at you? (laughs) That's appalling. (laughs)
0: Um. I'm Martine Powers, and this is How to Flip the House a mini-series from Can He Do That? exploring what it takes to make a wave election. And on this episode, we're telling a story about the evolution of the Democratic Party. Because if you want to know how Democrats might pull off an upset in the 2018 midterms, the best place to look for answers is 2006, when the Democrats needed 15 seats to win control. And to do that, as Rom said at the time, they needed a change.
2: New priorities versus the same old policies that got us to the place we are today.
0: And if you want to understand the roots of the Democratic Party's long-standing identity crisis, you can look to a meeting in 2006 at the Democratic National Committee headquarters, a meeting where party leaders wrestled with their strategy on how to win in 2006, and in every election after that. That meeting erupted into an argument The argument turned into a feud, and that feud has come to symbolize the most entrenched divisions within the Democratic Party today. Divisions that have come out of this desperation for a win. Because back in 2006, things did look desperate. It's hard to overstate the demoralization
1: of the Democrats by that point, having lost several elections in a row, and a bit of a sense that, will this ever really happen?
0: That's Wall Street Journal reporter Neftali Ben-David. Back in 2005, he was working at the Chicago Tribune covering the 2006 midterm campaign. And he got behind-the-scenes access to shadow Rahm and his staff for the 18 months leading up to the election.
1: There was a lot of pent-up energy on the Democratic side and a feeling that it's been too long and now is the time we've got to make our move.
0: And Rahm seemed to be just the guy to make that move, to bring down the Republicans in Congress.
2: Listen, the Republican Party's leadership has failed because their policies fail America's future.
0: But despite that outward confidence, Naftali says that Rom was quietly worried. He worried about whether winning back the House that year was even possible. He worried about disappointing Democrats and House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. And he worried about whether a loss would blow his own chances at ever becoming a party leader. Back at that charity roast dinner in 2005, Hillary Clinton wrapped up her jokes about Rahm and then she looked at him. I think that
2: we just may be seeing a, an earthquake of an election in '06, And if it happens, it'll be because, in large measure, Rahm Emanuel is there with the energy, the focus, the determination on behalf of our country to take back the House. Thank you so much.
0: In the C-SPAN video, you can see Hillary Clinton walking off the stage. Then the shot cuts to Rahm, sitting at a table next to his wife. He's clapping politely, and he has this tight-lipped smile on his face. But he's not laughing. He doesn't look proud or heartened by her vote of confidence. In that moment, Rahm Emanuel looks very scared. To understand what Rahm Emanuel was walking into, you have to remember the political climate at the time. John Stewart summed it up pretty well in May 2006.
3: Uh, President Bush is uh, very low in the opinion polls. I believe, uh, I believe he's now at negative 13.
0: This is in an interview with DNC Chair Howard Dean.
3: People are displeased with his handling of Iraq, the economy, uh, his Katrina. family, Katrina. <laughs> How will the Democratic Party blow this? <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, we're, we're hoping not to. For a change, we got uh,
0: after last, years uh, of losing critical elections, Democrats felt that 2006 might finally be different. Things weren't just bad with President Bush. A number of Republicans in the House were swept up in scandals, crooked dealings with lobbyists, financial corruption, and most encouraging. Democrats only needed 15 seats to win back the House. And Neftali Ben-David says Rahm Emanuel had a plan.
1: You don't want to put a lot of money into a campaign that either has no chance of winning or is going to win regardless. You want to spend strategically, you have to do a lot
0: of triage. Rahm's approach was much more targeted than the strategy that Republicans used in 1994. Back then, Bill Paxton and the NRCC supported any candidate from any state willing to run against an opposing incumbent. But Rahm's tactics were laser-focused. He settled on a set of critical districts in a few concentrated parts of the country. Places with a Republican majority, but only slightly. And that's where they'd pump their money. Their goal was to get to 50. 50 districts that could be flipped from red to blue, with 50 Democratic candidates who could appeal to those more conservative districts. Well, he
1: loved military veterans. He loved sheriffs and police officers, people who you could think of as being not traditional Democrats, people who you would associate more with Republican values and Republican policies. He loved the sort of tough guy thing. And it was... In a way, an attempt to send a broader message about the Democratic Party, which is we're not just a bunch of liberal, long-haired, environmental, you know, feminists. So the broader national message was, Democrats are not culturally alien. There was Brad
0: Ellsworth, a sheriff from Indiana.
3: I see the world as a sheriff, not a politician. A
0: sheriff who believes. Joe Sestak of Pennsylvania, a former Navy vice admiral. There was Illinois House candidate Tammy Duckworth. A U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel who had months earlier lost both borders. legs in Iraq. As a Black Hawk helicopter pilot, I risked my life to defend our country. So you can be sure I'll fight in Congress to make our borders secure. I'm Tammy. And then they found someone that might be the biggest get of all, if they could convince him to run.
3: Oh no! This young man can throw the football now. In, in uh, high school, I said he was an All-American. He threw for 7,684 yards and 74 TDs.
0: Keith Struller, University of Tennessee star quarterback and first-round NFL draft pick. He played for the Washington Redskins for a few underwhelming seasons before he was traded away and retired due to an injury. Still, he was now a well-respected businessman in Western North Carolina and an evangelical Christian. He
2: was a really, really good match for the district. He's, you know, born and raised there, had his family, was sort of local boy, popular, beloved.
0: That's Sarah Feinberg. She was hired to work underneath Rom as the DCCC press secretary during the 2006 campaign. She, for the record, is a Rom loyalist. Sure, he can be a little intimidating, and yes, he was always yelling. God, I don't even remember when else he's yelled at me. I mean, a
2: million, like a million billion times. Like, so many times. Like, more than my parents.
0: But Sarah says that Rom was unfailingly honest, and you always knew where you stood with him. I would much rather sort <laughs> of have it all
2: out there, and you're, you definitely have it all out there with him.
0: Sarah was a critical part of crafting the DCCC's message in races around the country. The beginning of the cycle is very
2: much about, you know, where can we find good people to run? Where can we soften up Republicans
0: so they're vulnerable? And Heath Schuler could exploit that vulnerability. His district was majority Republican, but he was such a popular hometown hero that Rom thought that he could pull off a win. And if they could get this minor celebrity to run, it would say big things about the Democrats' level of seriousness going into the 06 midterms.
2: People knew we were trying to get Heath in. If we hadn't been able to get Heath in the race, I think it would have not like, you know, turned the tide or something, but it would have been unhelpful you know, to our narrative and to our momentum. — Shuler had misgivings,
1: and one of his biggest misgivings was, if he did this, would he ever have time to spend with his family? So what Emmanuel started doing is calling him every time he, that is, Rahm, was with his family. He'd call up Shuler and say, hey, Heath, uh, I'm I'm at a soccer game watching my kids play right now, just wanted to let you know. Or he'd call and he'd say, hey, Heath, I'm on my way to pick up my kid from school, just
0: wanted to let you know. — And Rahm got other people to call, other politicians. Then-Senator Barack Obama called. Senator John Edwards, then considered a rising star in the party, he drove to Shuler's town to chat in person. Then, Rom brought out the big guns. One day, Heath Shuler is driving his car, and he gets yet another phone call.
1: But by this point, Schuller had gotten so many calls from people in Washington that Rahm had, you know, recruited to call Schuller and say, we really want you, we really want you to come. Uh, That he, when he saw it was a 202 number, he just kind of didn't answer.
0: He rolled his eyes. And Schuller let it go to voicemail. He listened to the message a few hours later. And that's when he realized that it was the former president of the United States. Rahm had gotten Bill Clinton to call. When Schuller called back, Clinton had this whole spiel about how the two of them were so similar— a former president and a former Redskins quarterback, two guys from the South who'd ended up in these high-profile jobs in Washington and taken a lot of flack. And Clinton was like, hey, a guy like you, you're a leader.
1: You should run for Congress. I do think that ended up being not unimportant in his decision to run. When I talked to Shuler about this afterward, he said, and look, maybe this was just a shtick or a line, but he'd say, look, I was recruited for college, I was recruited for the NFL, but I'd never face the kind of scorched-earth
0: recruitment that I got from Rahm Emanuel. Schuler said yes, and it was a big get for the DCCC.
2: He was just an important candidate at an important moment because there was a tension on that race. People knew we were trying to get Heath in.
0: The timing was really important. So Rom's candidates emerged, about 50 people who had a fighting chance at unseating a Republican, partly through Rom's persistence and partly because things just kept getting worse for Republicans. Remember, the fall of 2005 is when Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans, and there was huge criticism of the Bush administration's response. And when you look at the picture of the Democrats who were nominees in some of those most critical races, either in the most competitive districts or people who were considered possible surprise upsets, you can see some themes come up. Of 54 of those candidates, 42 of them were men and 12 were women. Only five of them were not white. And as a whole, they leaned toward the conservative end of the Democrat spectrum. Like take Heath Shuler. He opposed gun control. He didn't believe in gay marriage or abortion rights. He was a Democrat in name, but he didn't hold a lot of traditional Democratic values. And not everyone approved of Rahm's recruiting strategy. He was involved
1: in a pitched battle with Howard Dean and others in the party who wanted to recruit
0: liberal, Democratic candidates everywhere. Howard Dean, the guy who ran for president in 2004, and by the next year, the chair of the Democratic National Committee, the party leader that's supposed to work incredibly closely with the DCCC. Progressives loved him. The New York Times Magazine called him, quote, a folk hero for marginalized liberals. He just seemed to get why people on the left were fed up with the Democratic Party trying to appeal to conservative values.
1: And he would say things like, I'm from the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party, which was his way of saying, look, let's not be a pale imitation of Republicans. Let's give people a real choice.
0: Another thing that Howard Dean didn't like? The way that Rahm and the DCCC dealt with the primaries. If multiple Democrats were running in one district, they'd pick the one that they thought was most likely to win, and then they'd try to clear the rest of the field. They'd use the party's money to significantly outspend other candidates, or they'd just, like, straight up tell them not to run. And these kinds of strategies raised red flags, especially from the increasingly popular and influential liberal blogosphere. And
1: they many times argued that Wait a minute, we're the Democratic Party. There already is an anti-abortion party. There already is a pro-gun party. What are you doing recruiting a bunch of people that are just like Republicans? What's the point? Even if they win, so what? We've put a bunch of people into office with whom we don't agree.
0: But Rom wasn't concerned about the criticisms. Instead, he did what he did best. He dug in harder. As campaign season got underway, Rom was under enormous pressure to keep candidates on message. They wanted each campaign to feel homegrown and hyper-local, to focus on the qualities of each individual candidate that made them attractive in their district. That was the way to win.
1: And meanwhile, he was getting yelled at himself by leaders of the party, by uh, Nancy Pelosi, by Jim Carville. Everybody had a, uh, an idea on how to bring this all home. And, and he, of course, was the guy who had to make it happen.
0: That pressure made Rahm a relentless boss. For people like Sarah Feinberg, the TWC press secretary, that meant spending their days getting that message out and then obsessively tracking each district to see if that message was sticking. It would start every day with a phone call from Rom at 7. Or 6.30. Or 6.15. Or 6. And Rom would ask, what's in the papers? Like, first of all, he'd already read the papers. Like, I'm not sure why he was asking me. The Post, the Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Wires, some new stuff that only political junkies had ever heard of. Like, Chris Eliza had, like, a blog. And then the regional papers, the local news in the districts. They were trying to get a temperature of, like, what are people saying about the candidates? What are people thinking? What themes are gaining traction in certain districts? Because they were also getting inundated with polls from around the country, and then getting calls from Rom asking about the polls. Looks like he would just sort of run through the districts. And you can do them in
2: like 10 or 15 seconds each. If you spent 18 months focused on 40 races, you too would know Iowa won backwards and forwards.
0: All of this pressure coming from the top tiers of the party, it also made Rom relentless on candidates. So every day, he's on multiple cell phones, calling these people across the country.
1: But he must have made I mean, just dozens of calls a day in the course of traveling to various districts and uh, campaigning for candidates and giving them pep talks. And it was this patented ROM message, and candidates would sort of live in the combination of uh, dread and anticipation of these calls.
0: What does a Rahm Emanuel pep talk sound like?
1: I mean, you know, can I can I curse? I mean, he would say, I mean, you know, a typical Rahm Emanuel pep talk would be, you know, Jim or whoever it was, it's Rahm. Um, what the f*** were you doing last week with that press conference? Why were you saying that? Remember, you are the candidate of change. Why the f*** can't you say you are the candidate of change? Remember that, okay? From now on, you got a few more weeks. Remember, that's your f***ing message. You're the f***ing candidate of change. What did I just say? That's right. You're the candidate of change. F*** you. I love you. Bye. And you can only imagine what these people who are respected leaders of their communities felt at getting a phone call like that. And again, with some people, they loved it and they seemed to feel like they were sort of on his team. I think there were other people for whom
0: that was a turnoff. By spring 2006, the poll results were actually looking good for Democrats. They were moving the needle in these historically Republican districts until they reached California 50. I can't believe I still remember the number of that congressional district. California was having a special election in their 50th district, which is a traditionally Republican suburb of San Diego, right near the Mexican border. The longtime representative in that district had resigned after undergoing a federal investigation. It's a long story involving uh,
2: (laughs) corruption and cars and indictments and like a limo service. Anyway,
0: whatever. Look it up on your own time. Democrat Francine Busby was trying to take the seat with help from Rom and the DCCC. And this was 12 years after a quiet little special election in Alabama had set Republicans on a path to flipping the House. So by this point in 2006, people had learned that special elections could serve as a forecast of what would go down in the midterms. Political strategists wanted to know, would Republican corruption scandals be enough to get conservative voters to choose Democrats? It was kind of a test of
2: how strong is the momentum, how strong is the Democratic Party, are they going to take back the House?
0: And there was money riding on this, too. A Democratic win in a special election would help bolster this narrative that Dems are on the upswing. And it would help attract more and bigger donations for competitive House races around the country. A couple of days before the special election, Francine Busby said... An unfortunate comment. She was caught on camera telling a Spanish-speaking man that he didn't need legal status to vote in the election. She later said that she misspoke, but...
2: It was like a totally obvious pitch right down
0: the middle for Republicans. They, like, knocked it out of the park. And Francine Busby lost the election by a pretty wide margin, almost five points.
2: It was very much a defining moment because it was like, okay... You think you have all this momentum. Is that momentum, you know, fake? Are you just talking
0: it up and it's like hype, but you actually have no ability to win the ground game? And it was just a huge disappointment for the C. The day after the election, Rahm Emanuel called all his top aides, including Sarah, into his office. After the returns came in, he'd started poring over the district's data and exit polls, and he had a hunch of where they'd gone wrong and why their candidate had failed.
2: He said we had the wrong f-ing strategy. And we really f***ed us up.
0: Um, and he was right. It had nothing to do with that particular candidate's comments on immigration. What he meant was that the message that the DCCC was pushing in every competitive district, it was the wrong message. It was
2: clear that the mistake that we had made in that special election was we did not tie the Republican candidate to George Bush enough.
0: Sarah explained it like this Rahm and the DCCC had leaned hard into this all politics is local idea. They wanted each candidate to feel native to the district, not a cookie cutter propped up by the national party. But this was 2006. George Bush was so unpopular. There was so much outrage over the war. Hurricane Katrina had been a true national disaster. And suddenly, the Democrats realized what Republicans had learned back in 1994. When you're running a midterm election against an unpopular president, politics isn't local. It was time to frame things on a national scale and drive a single point home. A vote for a Republican congressperson is a vote for George W. Bush.
2: I think we're so focused on, you know, the Heath Schulers of the world, making the case in his corner of North Carolina about why he was the right choice to represent that district and why the Republican was the wrong choice for the people of that district. We needed to just go back and remember that there's also this massive thing driving the national news every day and driving public opinion every day, and it's not good for Republicans, and you should make them own it a little bit.
0: And that's how Rahm and his team started coaching their dozens of other candidates. They'd be like, look, your opponent is going to try to be like, George Bush has nothing to do with me. But don't let
2: them get away with saying, like, all I do is just, you know, get up every day and go represent my district. Like, don't let them get away with that. That's their guy.
0: And that's what they plan to start doing. Bring out a cascade of TV and radio ads linking Republican candidates around the country to George Bush. They wanted to lean hard into this new line of messaging. But to do that, they needed more money. And to get more money, Rahm was going to have to fight for it. And he was going to have to persuade the guy who'd been the most vocal critic of him, his campaign strategy, and his vision for the future of the Democratic Party. There was a reason why Rahm Emanuel was always good at raising money. A reason why he was picked to chair the DCCC in the first place. Rahm didn't mind rustling feathers in pursuit of donations. Neftali, the Chicago Tribune reporter, he saw this firsthand.
1: I mean, there's a couple of famous stories about him where when he was fundraising, somebody would send in a check. And if he considered it not a big enough check, he would tear it up, sometimes in front of them, to make the point that he would say, you should be embarrassed to send me a check that's this small. And whereas other people might just say, thank you very much, perhaps you can give a little more next time, he wasn't afraid to be in your face and confrontational. And I think that's why Nancy Pelosi decided to
0: choose him and pass over several more senior people. And Rom felt that, to be a successful congressional candidate, you had to demonstrate that you, too, had no compunctions about asking people very forcefully, for money.
1: Candidates had to show that they could do a certain amount of fundraising on their own before they would then get help from the party.
0: Rahm also employed a strategy that was pretty controversial within the party, forcing incumbents and safe districts to donate their own campaign dollars to the DCCC to do their part to help elect other Democrats. That's great if you have a wealthy donor base at home. But it's not so great if you're representing a low-income community without a lot of constituents who can throw over tens of thousands of dollars in cash.
1: A lot of senior members of Congress didn't like that. But particularly in the Black Caucus, where a lot of the members had pretty safe seats, they didn't like being ordered around by this guy who'd been in Congress for a couple years. And so there was a certain amount of friction over that, no question. And he probably talked to them in a way that they simply did not take kindly to.
0: And there was someone else who really didn't like this idea. Howard Dean, the DNC chair, he believed in this thing called the 50-state strategy. He wanted the party to spread its focus and its dollars to all 50 states, set up infrastructure everywhere, offer modest support to any Democrat willing to put up a fight anywhere in the country, Even if you don't win each state in 2006, you make traditionally Republican states more competitive in future races. But under Howard Dean's leadership, the DNC was getting blown out of the water in terms of fundraising. In March of 2006, the DNC had reported raising $50.1 million in that election cycle. The RNC had raised more than double, $103 million. So people were skeptical about Howard Dean's approach. Democratic strategist Paul Begala went on CNN in May of that year and essentially mocked Howard Dean's plan. Quote, he says it's a long-term strategy, but what he has spent it on, apparently, is just hiring a bunch of staff people to wander around Utah and Mississippi and pick their nose. And Nancy Pelosi and other top leaders like Chuck Schumer, who chaired the Democratic campaign committee for the Senate, They were trying to get behind Rom, convince Howard Dean to move money to those critical house races. And all of it comes to a head at a meeting in May of 2006. At the time, Howard Dean refused to talk about what happened. The whole thing was very hush-hush. So I thought that he probably wouldn't say much about it now.
4: Rom lost his temper, used a lot of bad language, slammed the door, and I didn't see him until November, which was fine with me.
0: I was wrong. That, for the record, is former Vermont governor, presidential candidate, and DNC chair Howard Dean. And this is his version of that meeting.
4: It was was very fun. It was uh, Schumer and
0: Reed and I and Rahm were sitting down. You know, they were telling me how it was going to be. This is all going down in Howard Dean's office. Chuck Schumer and Harry Reid, who was at that time Senate minority leader, they're both there, too. They wanted to bankroll them,
4: which I wasn't going to do until I saw a good reason to it, because there was no basis in the past for doing it in the future.
0: Howard Dean said that Chuck Schumer and Harry Reid were insistent about their needs.
4: So, but they were patient, and we had a good dialogue, and they were great. Rahm, on the other hand, blew You know, he blew up. He said, oh, you don't know what you're doing, and used the F-bomb about nine times. And then he he had jumped up, and he was yelling, and Reid and I— and. Schumer just continued the conversation as if he wasn't there. Now he doesn't know what to do. He's jumped up. He screamed the F-bomb. He, he can't sit down as if nothing happened. He, he, he doesn't know what to do, so he runs out, slams the door, runs down the stairs, and I never saw him for the rest of the campaign, which was great.
0: It's worth noting that we reached out to Rom's staff multiple times to get his side of the story, and his aides never responded. Eventually, Howard Dean offered to give $20,000 to every competitive house race, which Rom thought was laughably small. And Howard Dean thought that Rom was ungrateful. The feud only got worse over the course of the campaign. At one point, the Chicago Tribune reported that a fire drill at the DNC building had caused anxiety among staffers because they were worried that Rahm Emanuel and Howard Dean might bump into each other on the curb. Now, Howard Dean knew that Rom and Chuck Schumer weren't the only ones who disagreed with his 50-state strategy. And Howard Dean says that, yeah, of course he knew that people thought it was idiotic that he was investing money in all these states where Democrats had no chance of winning. And of course he knew that people were mocking his pledge to visit Democratic Party offices in every state in the union.
4: I promised I would, and I did. The last place I went was American Samoa,
0: And yes, he heard Paul Begala's comments about staffers picking their noses in Mississippi and Utah.
4: I think Paul has since recanted that.
0: And he didn't care that he was raising less money than the Republicans.
4: Some of the biggest donors in in Democratic uh, Party history I never called once in four
0: years. Because in Howard Dean's view, the Democrats needed to tackle their biggest problem. They needed more purple states more states and districts where they consistently had a shot of competing. Instead, Democrats had simply ceded huge swaths of the country, the South, the West, to Republicans, without even trying to win any of those states. And by continuing this practice of ignoring most of the country and then focusing all your efforts on these battleground states once every election cycle, they were cementing their own minority status. He continues to believe to this day that Rahm Emanuel and the DCCC had it all wrong, especially when it came to fundraising and where to spend that money.
4: You have to think long-term in politics. You can't just think about the two-year election. That's part of the inside the Belway problem. That's all they think about is two years. That is not the way to build anything. It's not the way to build a party. And frankly, it's not even the way to win elections. Howard Dean explained it like this. You have to think of two proverbs. Howard Dean really likes proverbs. One is Lao Tzu. The longest journey begins with a single step. That is, if you want to win Utah sometime or Alabama, you don't start two years before. You start 15 or 20 years before getting people used to the idea that Democrats are not all fundamentally evil. Uh, Secondly, chance favors the prepared mind. That's Louis Pasteur. That means you don't know what's going to happen.
0: What he means is that you want to get a Democratic infrastructure in place so you're ready to capitalize on a rare opportunity like a surprise retirement or a criminal indictment or like, I don't know, revelations that a frontrunner Republican in a conservative state like Alabama allegedly initiated unwanted sexual contact with teenage girls, which becomes public weeks before a critical election and gives an underdog Democrat a chance to win. Howard Dean's point is that you don't know what the circumstances will be at the time of the election. And you also don't know what kind of candidate Democratic voters will prefer. When you try to squash the primary process, recruiting moderates and, like, shooing away the ultra-liberal, primary voters don't get a chance to have their say.
4: I don't think uh, Rahm or the DCCC knew anything about who could win and who couldn't in, in all these different states, maybe their own state, but I, I think I think let, let the local people decide who their candidates are
0: going to be. As convinced as Howard Dean is about the 50-state strategy, that's how convinced people like Sarah are about why it doesn't work. Sure, it
2: sounds right, except what he was slash is proposing to do makes no sense. What he's talking about is saying, if we, let's say we give that, you know, district's Republican Party, you know, a quarter of a million dollars every year so that they can have a party apparatus. Like, okay, so now you've got a quarter of a million dollars every year going into a majority Republican district. And I guess they have a little bit of a nicer office. And maybe they hire a field staffer or two. Maybe they have a mail program. I mean, I'm like trying to think of what they do with that money. Maybe they have some radio ads. Maybe they start mailing people. I mean, the amount of work that goes into actually having a Republican district flip to Democrat, not because more Democrats have moved in and the Democrats have—and the demographics have changed, but because you have somehow convinced those Republicans to go on the other side of the ballot. It costs amounts of money that the Democratic Party— hasn't seen. The Republican Party hasn't seen. I mean, it's just, that's the thing. It's not in touch with reality. It's just not.
0: By the summer of 2006, things were far from perfect for the Democrats. They still had less money than the Republicans. But as summer wrapped up and turned into fall, there was a recurring theme. Democrats were optimistic for reasons that had nothing to do with their ability to campaign.
4: Some races were impacted by lawmakers' connections to disgraced lobbyist Jack Abramoff, part of what Democrats labeled a culture of corruption.
0: A rising tide of corruption charges against Republican lawmakers that was getting worse. April 2006. Majority Leader Tom DeLay is facing accusations that he violated campaign finance laws. He announces that he's resigning from Congress. July 2006, a court rules that the Republican Party cannot replace him with a new candidate on the ballot. August 2006, Representative Bob Ney of Ohio withdraws his candidacy for re-election. He later pleaded guilty to charges of conspiracy and making false statements. August 2006, Republican candidate Chris Wakeham is revealed to have lied on his resume about being a Harvard grad and a Gulf War vet. And Rom and Sarah are starting to feel hopeful. But also, they're just trying to keep their mouths shut. Especially in a Republican
2: district, you're not doing yourself any favors if the Democratic Party comes and, like, starts stomping on graves, right? You don't need to go, you know, put it on a—you may actually put it on a billboard. That might actually be helpful. But, but you don't need to go scream it into a microphone, acting like, I told
0: you so. Still, according to Neftali, the onslaught of scandal after scandal was getting really bad. And it was clear that Rom had a real shot of getting the 15 seats necessary to win the House.
1: And I think those moments uh, in that final stretch really made people feel like, uh, OK, maybe this really could happen, that the Democrats started off at a big disadvantage, but maybe they can
0: actually pull this off this year. And just when Republicans thought that it couldn't get any worse, then came September of 2006.
1: Good evening. A congressional career is in ruins tonight. A politician in disgrace and a famous program for young people on Capitol Hill is once again under intense scrutiny. Florida Republican Congressman Mark Foley resigned today, effective immediately, after sexually explicit messages sent to underage boys surfaced
0: as a result of an ABC News investigation. It was only 39 days before the election, and there just wasn't enough time to make a comeback. Election night at DCCC headquarters. There was the usual pizza and beer and cookies with little American flags on them. Ron was there with his brother, his wife, and his three little kids were running around. Sarah and the rest of the DCCC staff were there, along with Nancy Pelosi, who was waiting to see if she was going to be the next Speaker of the House. Everybody thought they'd
1: win and was pretty sure, but it's one of those things where until you see the numbers... You don't want to be overconfident.
0: There was a big white dry erase board set up, which was divided into dozens of little squares for each of the competitive house races.
1: And as the results would come in, they would uh, mark whether it was a victory or a loss. Of course, every time a close race would be won, you know, a cheer would
0: go up. One of the first races that was called was a surprise upset in Kentucky, where an under-the-radar Democrat named John Yarmuth had defeated a longtime incumbent Republican. Then, Democrat Joe Donnelly was projected to win in Indiana. And then, Keith Schuler's district came in. Eight points up, he was going to win. And at 11.08 p.m., Wolf Blitzer called it. We can now project that the Democrats will be in the majority in the House of Representatives.
2: (laughs) I mean, I think I was like... Holy, you know, holy cow, we just won the house. But the more important thing was Pelosi was was walking into Rom's office, and Rom figured it out like two seconds before she walked in.
0: And Nancy Pelosi walked
2: through the door. And he stood up and said, Madam Speaker, it was awesome. I want to just thank a few people if I can. I want to thank one person in particular. She has been tireless campaigner, a heroic fundraiser, and she will soon make history as the first female speaker of the United States House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi! Nancy, Nancy, Nancy. The campaign is over. The Democrats are ready to lead. an unmistakable message of change and new direction for America. Is this a great night for
3: Democrats? Is this a great night for America?
0: In the end, the Democrats took 30 seats, exactly double what they needed to win back the House. And in the process, they did not lose a single House seat previously held by a Democrat, which is the only time that that's happened in history. Democrats also took over the Senate. Both Rom and Howard Dean took credit for the win. But Howard Dean does give Rom some credit for zeroing in on the races that put them over the edge. But his strategy was important. I mean, look, he did produce a bunch of seats. And besides winning back the House, there were other achievements. Nancy Pelosi, first female Speaker of the House. A freshman class of U.S. representatives that would go on to be the A-team of the Democratic Party. Gabby Giffords. Keith Ellison, first Muslim elected to Congress and now Deputy Chair of the DNC. Joe Donnelly, Maisie Hirono, Kristen Gillibrand. Now, all the U.S. Senators. Even Tammy Duckworth, who actually lost that congressional race by a 51-49 margin. She gained notoriety, she served in President Obama's cabinet, and now she's a high-profile member of the Senate. And Rahm Emanuel? He, of course, got fast-tracked to party leadership. He went on to become President Obama's chief of staff in 2008, and now he's the mayor of the city of Chicago. Most important, winning the House and the Senate in 2006 gave the Democrats momentum. And it showed that voters were ready for a change and that they'd support a candidate who promised something different.
3: But tonight, because of what we did on this day, in this election, at this defining moment, change has come to America. In
0: 2008, when Barack Obama won the presidency, the Democrats gained a net of 21 more seats in the House. But that success of claiming ownership of the House, that was short-lived. In 2010, just four years later, the rise of the Tea Party and right-wing Republicans brought another wave. Democrats lost 63 seats in the House, the biggest swing since 1948. Of the original 30 Democrats that had flipped the House seats in 2006, only 12 were still remaining, by the end of 2010. The party lost control of the House, and they never got it back. And that dramatic loss has brought about a lot of second guessing about what actually went down in the 2006 midterms. People, political commentators and strategists, they wonder whether Democrats in 06 actually set themselves up for future failure by pushing conservative candidates and weeding out the most liberal candidates by embracing platforms that would play well with moderate Republicans, by choosing not to bolster candidates and issues in purple districts that would get the attention of the people who have been historically less motivated to come to the midterms. Younger people, people of color, ultra-liberals. Like, yeah, the Democrats won in 06, but the way that they won was always going to come back and bite them. And that criticism has gained traction. A couple years ago, in a story about Rahm's legacy, the New Yorker suggested that Rahm's recruitment strategy in 2006 had actually been catastrophic. And they suggested that, quote, in the long run, 2006 might have weakened the party more than it strengthened it. I asked Neftali Ben David, the Tribune reporter, if he thought that that was a fair criticism.
1: Sure, and there are people who made that argument. There are. Pl- it's not like the Howard Dean wing of the party after that election said, well, guess you were right, Rahm, we won. They said, fine, but we could have won two dozen more seats if we had run better candidates. And there were others from Rahm's critics saying, look, being too heavy-handed isn't a good idea. Let the party members choose who should represent them.
0: Because think about it. That's one interpretation of the 2016 Democratic presidential primaries, Right. Bernie versus Hillary, the Democratic Party is accused of handpicking a candidate that's less risky and more establishment. And she ends up losing in the general election to a Republican with no political experience. And as we get closer to the 2018 midterms, Democrats are still struggling with this choice. Like, look at California. Democrats there have been employing ROM Playbook 101, throwing money at centrist candidates to attract swing voters. But then there are places like Georgia, where Stacey Abrams has become the Democratic nominee for governor, a progressive Black woman, a politician who moonlights as a romance novelist, in a state that has elected exclusively Republican governors, presidents, and senators since the early 2000s. The reality is Democrats cannot win by pretending to be Republicans. Republicans see through it, and Democrats see through it. I want to win by turning out voters who want the best lives possible, and that's how she I. She can't rate. rely on swing voters, she can't rely on the white working class, but Democrats are hoping that her candidacy excites all the people who don't usually vote in the midterms: black people, young people, children of immigrants. It's risky, but at the very least, her candidacy will test out a different kind of Democratic strategy, and that's what Howard Dean says has been missing from all of these midterms going back to 2006. He says that Rom and party leadership weren't doing the work to ensure that future elections would draw diverse, more progressive candidates that would energize liberals and get them to actually show up and vote in the midterms. No, I don't think so. So like the Heath Shuler example, that wasn't about
2: choosing a white conservative pro-life guy. It was about getting a guy in who could win the district. You could have put in a liberal, pro choice African American dude or African American woman, and they just wouldn't have won. It's like that. I'm from West Virginia. You know, every two years, we frequently put someone on the ballot who has no hope of winning. The Democratic Party tends to be really supportive, and we have a really liberal candidate who then loses. So I, I disagree with your premise a bit. I don't think the party was, like, in two different factions for the 2006. I think it was two strong personalities that weren't willing to back down. And I don't think that what we did was, was recruit candidates that could only win in the short term. We actually helped and partnered with the only candidate who could win.
0: And she argues that data proves her point.
2: So there's a statistic that once a district is... I can't remember the specific number, 52.7%, 53%, one party. It is almost impossible to flip it. You're only going to flip it in a wave. You are only going to flip it in a wave, or you're going to flip it if there's something, like, really wrong. Somebody's indicted. Somebody passes away. Someone, so there's a huge scandal. That's the only time you're going to flip it. And so recruiting someone like Heath Shuler isn't, oh, let's try to win in the short term. It's let's try to win in the only couple of years we're ever going to win.
0: This is the thing that Sarah said that really surprised me. When you look at the losses that happened in the 2010 midterm, Sarah knew that they were coming. She and other DCCC staffers, they had every expectation that they were going to lose control of the House again in just a few years.
2: So one of the saddest things about taking back the House in 2006 was that the morning after the election, you could look every single person we just elected and know without a doubt that a bunch of them were going to be gone two years later. Like it was literally almost statistically impossible for them to all all hold on. Pendulums swing. And like when you have a wave, it doesn't just stay stuck in that one side. (laughs) Like it comes back. When you win a 53% Republican district with a Democrat, that person is not surviving for long. Now, that doesn't mean that that candidate can't From the very beginning, communicate with their constituents about what they're doing. Have town halls all the time. Raise money. Every single weekend, travel the district and talk about what they're doing to deliver. It doesn't mean that candidate can't hold on through one or two or through miracles, three or four cycles. But when you win a district like that, you start your life in Congress holding on to a windowsill with your fingertips on, like, the 10th story.
0: And you're just holding on for dear life. This idea that you ask all these people to uproot their lives and their families and face all these challenges and put themselves out there for public consumption, all while knowing that there are overwhelming chances that they will get fired from that job in less than two years, it just seems so wasteful. Like, you're setting people up to fail. It's totally true, though.
2: I mean, you I mean, you fight, and you work, and you do everything you possibly can to hold on. But you are probably going to lose relatively quickly.
0: And these candidates, the Heath Schulers of the party, the ones who won in heavily Republican districts.
2: I mean, there were some of these folks who just, you just knew they weren't long for the world they needed to wake up every day with an understanding that someone is trying to take that job away from them. And wouldn't
0: that prove Howard Dean's point? If the wins in the House are doomed to be fleeting, why not abandon the short game and instead focus on the long game? But Sarah said that it's not that simple. And if you
2: think that winning the House back in 2006 didn't really matter, then ask Barack Obama and like, people who were covered by Obamacare, and Speaker Pelosi, first woman Speaker of the House. It mattered, it totally mattered to take back the House.
0: And of course, back in 2006, the Democrats didn't know for certain that their success would be so short-lived. And that however challenging the 2006 election might have been, things would soon get a lot harder. Because in 2010, the Republicans were about to do something very different that would change the whole game. That on the next episode of How to Flip the House. This has been How to Flip the House, a special audio miniseries from the Washington Post's Can He Do That podcast. To learn more about this miniseries and about the story of the 2006 election, Check out wapo.st/slash how to flip the house. There, we've got more behind-the-scenes data, historical context, and archival information that will help you dive deeper into the midterms. We want to thank our guests on today's show: Neftali ben David, Howard Dean, and Sarah Feinberg. Also, in the process of researching this story, one resource that was extremely helpful was Neftali ben David's book, The Thumpin: How Rahm Emanuel and the Democrats learned to be ruthless, and ended the Republican Revolution. I'd encourage you to check out that book if you're curious to hear more about the 2006 midterm. This story was reported and written by me, Martine Powers. It was produced by Carol Alderman with editorial oversight from Jess Stahl. Ted Muldoon produced the prologue to this series, and he wrote the Can He Do That theme song. Kat Rudell Brooks designed the art for this series, Ruben Fischerbaum and Kazi Awal created the beautiful accompanying page for this miniseries, which again, you can find at waposaint how to flip the house. Special thank you for editorial insights from Dave Clark and Lillian Cunningham. And this series would not have been possible without the support of Mike Semmel and Victoria Benning. And I'd also like to give a special shout out to Fez Siddiqui and Colin Pope for their help and encouragement. If you'd like to hear more political stories from the Washington Post, check out other episodes of Can He Do That? A podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. You can find an episode archive at wapo.st slash that, And Can He Do That? is also available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.